This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome in. It is Tuesday, April 6th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Late Kick is live. We have got... As always, a jam-packed show for you. We've got a number of different angles to hit all across the country. Also, just want to put this out there, general statement, it will make sense in time. There's a reason. Well, there are a few reasons, actually. We don't use the O word around here. We talk about it as X season instead of off season. And here's the reason. There is no time busier in this line of work than the X season. And case in point, there's a lot going on right now. There's a curtain. You can't see it. It's imaginative. It's figurative. But there's a curtain. And then there are a lot of folks behind the curtain, i.e. Director Emeritus Colin right now. He exists. He's a real living, breathing human boy with feelings and emotions and a heart just like you and I. He's behind the curtain. Well, there are other things behind the curtain, too. You know, different ideas, different plans, different, oh, concepts for eventually when we get to football season, which is under 150 days away now. It's getting kind of real, so just be on guard. Basketball season in the rear view. we got football season coming up. It's your constitutional right to watch baseball. We're worried about football season, and so we're going to talk about it tonight, but I just want to whet your appetite. There are some things coming that you're really, really going to enjoy. So just because it looks this way now, in other words, and just because it sounds this way now, doesn't mean it'll always look and sound this way. And by that, I mean we can improve some things. So I want to ask you a question as we dive into the show tonight. Here's what we're talking about. The second best head coach in college football, Nick Saban, we're just going to safely assume most people have in their number one spot in the head coaching power rankings. But the number two spot, you run fill-in-the-blank university, you got the opportunity to hire any coach not named Nick Saban for the next 10 years, let's just say, who you hiring? I got a pretty definitive answer on this one. It sure has changed as of late. I'm also going to dive into this whole debate that's not new. It pops up every year, usually around this time, and then again in October or November, and that is that Georgia-Florida game location. It's in Jacksonville. It's been there since 1933, every year but a couple of years in the 90s. Should it stay there? Because I've found, and it has been reaffirmed as of late, that some of the division in debates in college football is kind of one-sided. It's not really divided. This topic's really divided. A lot of people have a lot of different, really, really ingrained thoughts and opinions on this. I don't. I'm an alien on this whole thing. So I've been swayed like a leaf blowing in the wind and fall on this topic. I'm going to revisit it tonight. Maybe one of you can change my mind and make me plant my feet firmly on one side of that debate Got a lot, and I mean a lot, of spring practice intel and whispers. Some programs have already had their spring games now. Again, we are hitting as many as we can. Uh, Some of you asked the other day, like, why haven't you said anything about Florida the last couple of shows? It's not that we're ignoring Florida. I just try and bring you things from the programs that I'm specifically hearing from. So Florida, kind of talked about them a couple of weeks ago. It's not that there's nothing going on there. Just hadn't really heard anything of note that I wanted to bring to the forefront on the show. Also, Bud Elliott put up a really good article, really good piece today on 247sports.com about the correlation that seems evident. Like when I say it to you, you're going to say, well, duh, that's pretty stupid. Of course. No, listen closely to what I say. 
How important is winning in college football recruiting? See, I saw this. I saw the headline earlier today, and I thought it said, "How important is winning in college football?" Now, I was I was halfway on my way to texting Bud what I just told you not to say, but then I saw that extra word, recruiting. And there's this big gap. There's a difference between good and elite recruiting classes. How important are on-field results when it comes to all that? So we're going to dive into all that tonight. Let's let's just sit back. Let's stretch. If you're sitting on the front porch, if you're riding in the cab of an 18 wheeler, wherever you are. Let's just talk some college football. Also, we are marching. We're very close. It may be by the end of the night that we get over 2,000 on Instagram at Late Kick Josh. When we get there, the Late Kick Show Owners Association Lottery will open and we will be taking new submissions for a new show that we will, I don't know, record within a week of when we hit 2,000 on there. And just a little side note, and I promise I will loiter no longer at the beginning of the show after this. I just want to remind you. You guys haven't been around me at 24-7 during a season that's normal. And by normal, I mean me being at a big game every week. When I'm at those games, there is no better social platform with which to follow me on than Instagram. We get a lot of access that you don't get. We get to see a lot of things when we're covering games that you don't get to see. But the iJosh is there so you don't have to be. And if you're following me on Instagram, you get to see a whole lot. I mean, that story, that that Instagram story, probably 36 posts deep on any given Saturday with all kinds of odds and ends behind the scenes that you don't get to see. Well, you got to follow me to see it. So at Lake Kick Josh, it's free. We're not charging anything over there. And the bonus is when we get to 2000, we'll be setting up the next edition of the Lake Kick Show Owners Association. So just perks all around tonight. Let's dive in here. Who's the second best head coach in college football? Nick Saban's number one. Who's number two? You got your own university. You're running things. You got the next 10 years to fill, and you got a coaching vacancy. Who are you hiring if everyone's on the table? This was a viewer-submitted question for one of our recent editions of the Late Kick Extra podcast. It was from Anna, I believe. It was the first question. I recorded it this morning, and I got to thinking more about it, and I thought, this is a really, really interesting thing, because I think the name that comes to the forefront for me is not necessarily the name that comes to the forefront for, let's say, the majority of America. Because my quick answer was Ryan Day. I think Ryan Day is, is my definitive number two. It took me like five seconds to arrive at that. Now, there are big arguments maybe against that. I think some people may go Kirby Smart. I think some more people would go maybe Lincoln Riley, or at least those two may be comparable, but Dabo Swinney is the elephant in the room, and that would be a guy because he's already won two championships and he has an established mega power program at Clemson that you would say, okay, even though I just saw Ohio State beat them, it wasn't but a year earlier that they beat Ohio State in the semifinal. Oh, and by the way, he's got two national championship rings, whereas as a head coach, Ryan Day doesn't have a single one yet. I could entertain that argument. It's not like I would you know, pull out a sword and choose that hill to die on if you wanted to go Dabo to lead your program. But I'm going to give you several reasons why I choose Ryan Day. I think he's really special, first off. That's no breaking news. But I think maybe if you were to, let's say, take the collective temperature outside of Columbus, Ohio, take the temperature of the college football public, as I like to call them, whatever their temperature on Ryan Day is, I think mine's like five or 10 degrees hotter. So if we think about what it takes to masterfully guide a program at an elite level, they are becoming a monster recruiter. Ryan Day is a monster recruiter. I think some people would look and say, oh, Ohio State always recruits well. They were recruiting well under Urban Meyer, not this well. And they were already elite under Meyer. They weren't recruiting like this. They've, they've not recruited like this the way that Ryan Day is doing it. And I want to remind you, the backdrop of all this is he's still a new head coach. He's only a few years in as a head coach at Ohio State. He didn't have head coaching experience. They didn't go get him from the MAC. They didn't go get him from the Mountain West. He was already in-house, and they promoted him. 
I'm going to revisit that point in just a second. He is an exceptional football mind, brilliant tactician, very, very good developing the quarterback position. He coached quarterbacks at the college level in the NFL. He's got the pro pedigree, so he's got that NFL rub when he goes into living rooms, also when he coaches guys, obviously, on the field for Ohio State. He has an assassin's mentality. Like when I'm thinking about who I want at, at Pate State University, when I'm thinking about who I want to lead my program, Nick Saban's got that assassin's mentality. Nick Saban's got that, but who am I picking behind him? Ryan Day's got that assassin's mentality. Ryan Day strikes me as the kind of guy where if his phone rang and someone told him, like, I mean, we got a covert Michigan. Uh, covert Michigan's not something they ever say in the building up there. But if someone were to call up Ryan Day and say, Ryan, I know you get off work about 8 o'clock tonight, but listen, man, um, we got a village that needs rescuing down in the Congo, so we need you to pack up, and we just need a black ops mission overnight. You can be back in Columbus by 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. He strikes me as the kind of guy that could execute that. And so there aren't many of those out there. Some guys are nice. Some guys are aw shucks. Some guys just win. And then, you know, you could also trust him if he needed to. You could trust him to do a number of different things, a number of different unsavory things that aren't endorsed by this entity or that government Ryan Day is the kind of guy who has that personality. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because he's not really acting. He's not going out for any movie role. But here's what it does mean. Guys who are elite in all the categories that we just discussed, and they also have that kind of mentality about them, it's so easy to follow them. You have to, as a result of what we're looking for here, be an elite leader. Ryan Day has no problem with that. And again, he's not a 15-year veteran head coach. He's, He's not Nick Saban. Like He doesn't have the scroll of a track record that he can roll out and say, here's why you follow me. God didn't even have a national championship yet, but yet people are still following him. That entire organization sings the same tune. So when I look at Ohio State and I look at Ryan Day right now, anything that you claim he lacks, anything that maybe a head coach here or there has that you think he lacks, maybe in terms of hardware, to me, it's only a matter of time. So I don't really care because leadership and casting vision, I think he's a 10 out of 10. And But also... I go back, I talk about this frequently when I'm talking about Ryan Day. I go back to this entire notion that when Urban Meyer was stepping down, retiring, however you want to phrase that, when that news came across, what did you think? Because I know what I thought. I thought, selfishly, ooh, this is going to be really good because we're going to get a lot of content out of this. And there's going to be this big national search. It's not often. In fact, it's very, very rare that programs of this caliber come open without being run off in a ditch somewhere or without facing crippling NCAA sanctions. Like Tennessee is a nice brand name. They're facing a a lot of trouble right now and in a lot of turmoil. That's why the job was open. Ohio State was open for factors that are atypical, let's say. So here comes Ryan Day and you say, who? I thought they were going to go maybe to the NFL or I thought we were going to have a lot of the top candidates in America interview Depending on how rabid you are as a college football fan, you may or may not have even heard of Ryan Day. And yet they seamlessly looked at him and said, yep, he's our guy. It was like there was not a lot of consternation. There was not a lot of bickering or debate. There wasn't interviewing four, five, 10, 15 other guys and then getting told no, which never would have happened. And then saying, all right, let's just settle for Ryan Day. They already knew. You may not have known, but they already knew. They had the next superstar head coach right in-house. And so you can look at Dabo. You can look at Lincoln Riley. You can look at Kirby Smart. To me, when I look at Ryan Day, there is not a quality that those coaches possess that he doesn't possess. I think he may have that little something extra that maybe collectively that group doesn't have. It's intangible in nature. I'm just telling you, it's not physical in nature. It's not a ring. It's not a trophy. Those will come. He's brand new as a head coach. Those will come. 
But if I am filling a vacancy at Pate State over the next 10 years, Ryan Day is my guy. I'll be very interested, by the way, to see your submissions in the comment section below. Um, Because I think we'll get a lot of Dabo love there, which I totally understand. I'm very interested to see how many people would go, let's say, Kirby or Lincoln Riley over Ryan Day. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Speaking of Kirby Smart, let's talk about this Georgia-Florida situation. So this rose up again on Twitter the other day, as it tends to do in April, May, June, the X season, so to speak. Um, This entire premise that some people are rubbed the wrong way by the location of the Georgia-Florida game. It's, it's a legitimate debate, and some are and some aren't. Like, there are some debates that are propped up as such, and they aren't really debates at all. Like, when, when LSU was going through the rest of college football like a buzzsaw in 2019, I remember seeing an article, and it was, of course, this version of LSU versus the other great teams in the pantheon of college football. And I mean, these fools, whoever wrote that article, I can't remember, actually took time. They wasted breath. You only have a limited number of those people. And they wasted some of their breaths debating 1941 Army versus 2019 LSU. What? <clears throat> that was my reaction. So that's not really a debate. But this Georgia-Florida location deal, it's an actual debate. So I throw it up on Twitter the other day. I like to do polls. It's my unscientific field research that I use the Twitter account for. And so I get a pretty good sample size. had a couple thousand votes on it. And I asked, do you think it should be in Jacksonville or do you think it should be home and home? And it was like a 60, it was like a 60-40 split. I mean, it's that's really cut down the middle relative to what the poll results normally are there. So this is interesting because it's doubly unique. Unique factor number one is the split. Normally, you don't put something out there in college football that's 60-40, but number two, never, doubly never, is there something this divided that I don't have a strong feel on. I have no feel on this whatsoever. I have been to this game many times in Jacksonville. I have been to many games in Athens. I've been to games in Gainesville. Like I have witnessed major event-type games in all these venues. I have nodded in agreement with every or versions of every argument that's been made in this deal. I love the game in Jacksonville. Love it. It is a very unique atmosphere. Irresponsibly didn't have the phone silent. Uh, it is a very, very unique atmosphere. But also, I mean, I would I would be very intrigued to see what it's like the first time Georgia goes into the swamp, at least in the last 20 some odd years. Or, or let's say Florida goes between the hedges like the whole generation has never seen that. It's only happened like once each time in the mid 90s, I think it was when they were renovating the stadium. Otherwise, I mean, they've been doing this game every year in Jacksonville since the 30s. So it seems to me that Georgia fans are more split on this than Florida fans. So I want to quickly prop this up for you because you can take a side. I mean, everyone watches this game. It's usually the biggest game that weekend in the SEC. But I just want to get some opinions on this. I'm interested in Florida. I'm interested in Georgia. I'm interested in any college football fans opinion on this. Because there aren't many games like this. Like OU Texas is in Dallas. That's not going anywhere. But this is kind of the SEC's lasting version of that. I mean, Bama and Auburn don't play in Birmingham anymore. But you still have that Georgia-Florida game in Jacksonville. Here's the case for Jacksonville, the best I can tell. And you can add something in if I'm missing something. 
It's tradition, obviously. As I said, every year since 1933, aside from a couple of them in the 90s when they were renovating the Gator Bowl down there, it has been played in Jacksonville. And there are a lot of people who are just flat out agitated and tired of people trying to get their grubby little hands on everything in college football that is steeped in tradition and wanting to hit the change button or hit the reset button just for the sake of doing it. A lot of people are fed up with that. I understand that sentiment. I'm with you guys. Like 80% of the time, I'm with you guys on that. There's a uniqueness to it. Georgia plays several big games at home. Florida plays several big games at home. Why can't we just keep this one attraction? It's one time a year. If you don't like it, don't watch it. If you don't want to see it, don't buy a ticket. But give us this one game in Jacksonville. Jacksonville is a great host city, by the way. No one's ever complained about having to go to the city of Jacksonville. And like I said, even if none of these resonate with you, a lot of people make the case for Jacksonville by just saying, why don't you just keep your hands off the tradition of college football? You're trying to change everything else about this sport. Can we just can we not keep these one or two layers here? Can we not have some semblance of carryover generation to generation? That's the case for Jacksonville. I think there are a lot of great points there. Then we look on the other side. Because mark my words, as passionate as the keep it in Jacksonville crowd is, the home and home crowd, they're just as passionate. It seems like there's no one in the middle with me. There's no one indifferent. No one is straddling the seesaw. There are 500 folks over here, 500 folks over there, and there's me in the middle. Shruggy emoji. So the concept of making this thing a home and home is you get a major recruiting weekend. When Auburn plays at Alabama, it's a major recruiting weekend for the Tide. When the Iron Bowl is in Lee County, Alabama, it's not like a really weird way to say Auburn. I'm from Columbus. I'm like bordering Lee County. So that's what we call it down there. When the Iron Bowl is at Auburn, it's a huge recruiting weekend for Auburn. They build towards this stuff for two years. I mean, that's the tent pole event. So you know one of two years, guys, either when they're juniors or seniors, you're going to get them on campus and you're going to get to showcase a spectacle rivalry event. They don't get to do that at Georgia and Florida, at least with this game. They don't get to do that. The local economic impact cannot be undersold here. It would be a huge deal to have that economic windfall hit Gainesville once every two years or Athens once every two years. Also, the pure spectacle of having this as a home and home is something that almost sounds like promoting a pay-per-view in nature. When I'm talking about Florida and how bitter this rivalry is, and, and it is very authentically bitter, when you see Florida have to go into Athens, when you see Georgia have to go into Gainesville, the spectacle alone really kind of permeates and, and kind of tickles the minds of a lot of people. Like They'd love to see that. But also, from the Georgia side, and this is where I think they're more divided than maybe the Florida side, uh, there's a lot more support for Jacksonville on the Florida side because you can hop in a bus and be down there in an hour, whereas Georgia's got to get on a plane. That's always been the old notion. How is it neutral when one team drives and the other team flies? I, I get that. So here's what we do. Like, I've got a little mind map for this segment right here. There's, see, mind map. I get to the end of the mind map, and normally I have a resolution. There is no resolution. I have not landed any closer to really being on a side of this thing. Um, it's one of those call me and wake me up if you ever change it type deals, but I am open to having my mind changed on this. So if someone has a very, very convincing argument one way or the other, I'd love to see it. But so far, boy, I've been inconsistent. I've been like the kid who has parents who are trying to pull them, uh, different directions. And I'm like, yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, I love that. That sounds great. That sounds wonderful. I can't land. Spring practice continues across college football. Some spring games have already happened, and we have got a lot of intel to get to. I'm wasting no time. Let's dive right in. The Clemson spring game. Clemson with a Z, at least on this show, because my speech will not allow me to say it any other way. Uh, CU. 
the Tigers, in other words, had their spring game this last Saturday. A lot to talk about. That was a really good feature on the front page of 24-7 Sports today. I think Chris Hummer talked to Anna Hickey uh, up at Clemson, or 24-7 Sports site at Clemson, and had some really good feedback. Here's what's caught my eye. We talked about the Tigers a few times this spring. The running back position, they placed a premium on several things, as do most programs in spring, but one of the areas Dabo Swinney and his staff realized they needed to improve in is they just flat out weren't physical enough last year. And that's really a both sides of the ball type issue. But they look at the running game. Like they look at that Notre Dame game when they lost. They look at the Ohio State game when they lost. Couldn't run the ball. They couldn't control the line of scrimmage, which was a problem in, in several different aspects of the season last year. And they couldn't run the ball worth anything, especially relative to the standard you would expect when you got a guy like Travis Etienne back there. So Etienne is gone. Lynn J. Dixon is the guy that if you were just kind of guesstimating a depth chart for Clemson, your finger would land on. But Kobe Pace is a guy who has really come on for them. And there are some people, I'm not saying it's a majority, but there are some people around the Clemson program who would indicate to you they think that Pace ultimately could be their more well-rounded back. Different body type, maybe, than Travis Etienne, but he could be their more well-rounded back. At the very least, obviously, we have two bona fide number one running back candidates there. So that's a good thing. But also, when we go to the other side, when we talk about defense, the secondary for them, the linebacker core, the defensive line, there are varying degrees of question marks at all three levels of Clemson's defense. And you could talk about corner depth. You could talk about uh, developing the pass rush. You could talk about the year one to year two jump for a lot of those big names on the defensive line, interior and pass rushers. But here's really what I circle back to. You're going to see, as we enter preview magazine season, a lot of that stat. And that stat is 10 returning starters on defense, which brings us to the age-old question, how valuable are returning starters from a unit that was poor? Because Clemson's defense was poor last year. A lot of the past defense metrics, I mean, they finished outside the top 25 for the first time in several, several years, like before they started going on the national title run. And so they... They snapped a long defensive streak of very impressive statistical resumes. And so it's great that we're bringing a lot of guys back from that unit. Just kind of curious to see what kind of production jump we see from last year to this year. Kick it over to Tuscaloosa, Alabama's wide receivers. Fascinating here. John Mechie is back. And outside from that, unless you're a diehard Crimson Tide fan, you don't recognize many of the names. I would argue Jaleel Billingsley is, for all intents and purposes, a wide receiver. But you understand what I'm saying here. So... I think because of the depth situation in Alabama, and when I say situation, I mean just that, not a problem, a situation, at least two of these true freshman wide receivers are going to be impact players this year. Now, that could be Aggie A. Hall, that could be Christian Leary, it could be JoJo Earl, it could be any of a number of those guys. Obviously, I expect a combo of those guys to contribute, but also, let's not forget about the name Javon Baker, because we were sitting at this desk leading into the 2020 season, and I thought maybe Javon Baker was going to be a guy that stepped to the forefront. Maybe he was going to be the offensive true freshman equivalent of what Malachi Moore ended up being. Well, we were right about Malachi Moore. Javon Baker, it never really took off for him. Well, that's fine. He's only a second-year guy right now. And so Javon Baker, I think, is going to be a name also that steps up for him this year. But I think we have probably gotten as many questions about the quarterback situation in Alabama as any position group there, and that's not a surprise. But I haven't talked a lot about quarterbacks with Alabama this spring, and the reason is because I don't feel the need to. I told you at the beginning of spring, I'm going to reiterate it now, I don't really see that there's much of a competition there. 
there's competition in practice. When I say competition, I mean, is there really like a a 65, 35, 60, 40 guess right now as to who the starter is going to be? If there is not injury, which we cross our fingers for across the board, Bryce Young's the starting quarterback there. And that, by the way, is not a knock on Paul Tyson. I want to reiterate something. I think Paul Tyson has developed and come a lot further than maybe a lot of people around the Alabama program thought he was going to from the first time he stepped foot on campus. And I am looking down the road. um, This is pure speculation. I want to stress that. This is not knowledge of anything. But if a guy like Paul Tyson were to ever end up somewhere else, let's say, whereas previously I would not have expected him to be a contributor many places, Alabama included, I think he's a guy who could go start somewhere. So again, that's pure speculation. I don't think Nick Saban would be all that happy with participating in that portion of this conversation. But Paul Tyson has really, I think, been a pleasant surprise for them. Bryce Young's the real deal. So I think Bryce Young's going to be the starter there. Also, interesting little practice note from Charlie Potter in Tuscaloosa today. J.C. Latham and Tommy Brockermeyer, big names from our signing day show. The top two tackles in the country, both, both signed with Alabama. I know that shocks you. Both running with the second team now, as of today at least. So a lot of mixing and matching going on in spring. But I was, I was back home this weekend, and my cousin asked me, Hey, Brockermeyer. Is, is he going to see the field this year? I said, oh, he may, but I don't know if he's going to start. Well, hey, he's creeping ever closer, at least if spring depth charts are any indication. Let's go to Miami. Talked about the Clemson running back situation. How about the Miami running back situation? When I, if I pressed you right now, I didn't give you time to look at your phone, and I said, Miami, RB1 this year, running back one. Who is it? You'd say Cameron Harris, Cameron Harris. And uh, you'd probably, maybe, somewhat, possibly be right. but. Might I suggest to you that if Rhett Lashley is a tempo-based guy, which he is, and if Miami is fully committed to a tempo-based approach offensively, which they are, that Rhett Lashley, in his own words, this is not speculation here either, Rhett Lashley is going to want to land on a definitive number one running back. This is not an offense that is going to want to rely heavily on running back by committee. Now, it's great to have unlimited options, but when you're talking about drive to drive, you want a feature back. You want a bell cow. You want a guy that can be on the field six, eight, 12 plays in a row if needed. And in an ideal world, they can flex out at receiver. They can give you everything in pass pro and receiving and not sacrifice anything in vision at the tailback position in a classical sense. But I say all that to say this. Cameron Harris is returning. Cameron Harris is a guy you think you can depend on. But the word from down there, at least at the running back position that I've heard, has not so much been about Cameron Harris. It's been Don Chaney Jr. Don Chaney Jr. is a guy, again, kind of like we talked about with Kobe Pace at Clemson, a little bit different body type, more like the 5'10", 5'11", 215, sort of the box frame. It's a good thing at the running back position. It's not a bad thing. But he's got like he's got that mixture of size and speed that you want. Um, and it's it's very enviable if you have it. But also, it's the kind of guy, if you can get him from a concept standpoint and, and a blitz pickup standpoint, like if he nails down those aspects, it wouldn't shock me to see Don Chaney Jr. getting a ton of reps down there. In fact, it wouldn't shock me. I'm not ready to predict it yet. It wouldn't shock me if he ends up being their best option at tailback this year. So just something to watch at Miami. Let's kick it to Athens, Georgia. It's been a theme all spring long. It will continue to be the Georgia defense. Famous already in 2021 is the stat. And the stat is now that Tyreek Stevenson transferred to Miami, ironically enough, Georgia's got all the corner talent in the world. There's not a single start amongst them. 
No one started. So whether we're talking about Amir Speed or Jalen Kimber, Keely Ringo, all these guys, they got all the stars. They don't have the experience. And there's only one way to get it. And it starts against the Clemson Tigers in week one. But, and this was kind of underrated nationally because there's been a lot going on the past week in the, uh, the hoops world. Georgia got a monster transfer. That is not a monster name. But for their needs, it was a monster transfer. Tyke Smith is a, a kind of a nickel, a star position for them. He's a guy, a defensive back, who came in from West Virginia. This is pivotal. He's a good player. Probably not an elite first-round draft pick type. A very good, dependable player. I don't know. Maybe ends up going first round. We'll see. But here's why it's so big for Georgia. They were already having to get a lot of guys in the defensive secondary. What other kind of secondary is there, by the way? They were having to get a lot of guys ready to play positions at this level that they haven't started at. If you also had to cross-train a lot of those young guys at, let's say, corner and that nickel spot, it was going to be a five-alarm cluster for the first several weeks of the season. I'm not promising you it's not going to be now, but if you have a dependable option, again, barring injury, we'll knock on the desk here. It's, I think it's made of wood. <laughs> I smell lacquer, so yeah, it's got to be covering wood. If you have Smith able to lock down that star position, it no longer forces you to cross-train out of desperation. Now, you will cross-train, guys, because you have to have depth at every position. You have to have contingencies at every position. But all of a sudden, Kirby Smart and Dan Lanning can focus a lot more on, let's just make sure these guys have one of these corner spots figured out before we add onto their plate nickel responsibilities, dime responsibilities, nickel and money, and whatever terminology you use there. My point is, that's the kind of transfer that is, it's not going to be on the front page of 247sports.com. It could be the difference in a 24 to 21 game this year to where Georgia gets the win versus the loss. One more batted pass, one more incomplete, one more solid coverage downfield that forces a quarterback to eat the ball and then take a dive short of the sticks and punt away. I mean, that's kind of stuff. It decides division races in some cases. That's the kind of name. That's the kind of that's the reason we do these kinds of segments. That's the kind of name that you look back on if you're, you know, you're let's say you're a very very intent gambler and you want every edge you can have. That's the kind of name you need to know. That's the difference in a half point, three quarter point in an average game simulated 100 times that could be the difference in you eating let's say ribeye versus ramen noodles. I miss the ramen express. I got to be honest with you. Season can't get here soon enough. All right. Last segment is one that's a little bit more in-depth. It's in the weeds. That doesn't mean it's boring. It just means you got to sit back. So if you got something playing in the background, pause it. If you are in another room right now and you're letting your phone play, come back closer to the phone. I want to ask you a question. It's going to sound so basic in theory. How important do you think winning is to recruiting? How how much do these things correlate? On-field results to recruiting. And within the context of recruiting, what are your standards? So you define which program you're a fan of. And then let's ask what your standards are. I'll circle back around to that at the end. This is that whole chicken and egg thing, by the way. This is where we're going. That's the road down which we're going here. So there are many words that are used to describe recruiting classes. You could say we signed a terrible class. Okay, we're not going to worry about that so much tonight. But you could say we signed a good class. We signed a great class. We signed an elite class. Unfortunately, some amongst us find those terms interchangeable. They are anything but, friends. They're not interchangeable. So Bud Elliott 
I call him Budrick, but on the street, you may know him as Bud Elliott. He wrote a really good feature on 247sports.com today. It's still there. Uh, it's either on the front page or just scroll a little bit and you'll find it. But he was essentially asking, you know, taking every top 25 recruiting class in the early signing period era, so 2018 to 2021. And he was trying to look for a correlation between the minimum number of wins you need to have on the field to end up landing an elite class or a top 10 class or a top 25 class, different tiers there. So this was interesting to me because I always find the recruiting class to be this evergreen beacon of optimism. What I mean by that, and you know good and well if you live on message boards that you've read these things a hundred times each way. If you're having a good season, the talk is we're about to springboard in recruiting because of this thing. We're going to ride this wave of momentum on the field to a really good national signing day and beyond. Exponential are, are the results from, from this on-field effort leading to the recruiting boon, leading to then more on-field results. Well, then also you see the other side. You see having poor results on the field, and then you go to the message board, and no one's really worried about how the season's going. It's off the rails. What we're worried about is this recruiting class that if we can secure, will end up turning this around for us. And it's very rare that you find a program of any level of stability to where the season's going bad and everyone's lost hope in recruiting. Now, it, it never, well, let me not say never. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to, but now I go back to what Bud wrote today. So we're looking for this correlation here. And what he found was not overly shocking, but it did go a long way in validating what a lot of us already were thinking about the structure of college football right now. I don't know how unique it is to right now, but let me ask you this. So thinking about the number of wins in a year that you think is required if you're going to sign a top 10 class, let's say, there was wide variance. There was no variance, though, if you're going to sign a number one or number two class. So you hear a lot of times, this is where terms and words are important. You hear a lot of times coaches say, we signed a really good class. Well, that's great. What are your standards? Are your standards to be really good? Or do you fancy yourself a college football playoff contending program? Because if you fancy yourself a college football playoff contending program or a championship contending program, you know who you got to beat. You got to beat Bama. If it's not them, it's going to be Ohio State. If it's not them, it's going to be Clemson. If it's not them, it's going to be OU or Georgia. You know the kind of programs you're going to have to beat. Where are those programs recruiting? Well, with very few exceptions, they're recruiting one, two. Every year, like Bama, Ohio State, you see, sure enough, Jesse's showing you right now, the 2021 composite team rankings, it was Ohio State looking at one point like they were going to have the greatest class in history, and then they couldn't get it because Bama had the greatest class in history. And it's going to be that way every year because there's LSU, there's Georgia, there's Clemson. But looking at that one-two spot, there is no variance there whatsoever. No one, at least in this recent era, has finished with eight wins or fewer on the field, and then all of a sudden landed number one or number two in the recruiting rankings. So you got to be doing it on the field to land one-two. But what about three through 10? Because that's where things change fairly drastically. Then all of a sudden, you got a much higher percentage of programs that have won eight games, seven games, six games, but still managed to finish top 10. Here was the really fascinating part that, again, I don't think is shocking, but it validates a lot of what we think. There was, I think, how many were there? So, but here it is. Every top 10 class following an eight win or fewer season had a head coach that was in his first three years. 
that lends credence to the grace period theory. So basically what he's saying there is any program that, that won eight games or fewer, but then they were still able to land a top 10 class, it was a new head coach. And so what do we always say around here? We're saying it about Jeff Collins, like we say it with every coach that is one or two or three years in, you still got a grace period because you can still go out on the trail and you can sell families and you can sell kids on the concept that I inherited a dumpster fire. I can't do anything about it. The first order of business was put out the fire, then get the dumpster out of the alley, and then let's start refurbishing everything. We need you to help us do that. Don't worry about what the record is right now, because by the time you get here, we'll be turning things around, and with players like you, we won't have results like those anymore. Well, that only lasts so long. And then there's this critical juncture, this transition period to where you can no longer afford to win eight games or fewer and still hope to finish in the top 10. The perfect example, Bud pointed it out, he is dead on the money. The perfect example of that happening in real time was Tom Herman. Tom Herman, at a certain point at Texas, hit the juncture. It was this past year. Because the previous cycle, they were nothing to write home about on the field, but they still finished number eight in the overall team recruiting rankings. But then, in this last cycle, still wasn't getting the job done on the field, and you heard the negative. You felt that negative recruiting happening in real time. We were talking about it on Lake Kick in real time. And all of a sudden then they're in the mid to, to low teens and Herman gets axed because at a certain point, no one's buying it anymore. I mean, it was crystal clear this year. No one was buying what Tom Herman was selling. In fact, they were buying what opposing coaching staffs were selling. And that was Tom Herman is going nowhere. That thing at Texas is stuck in the mud. It's not going anywhere. You're spinning your wheels and they are too. If you hop on by default, you're not going anywhere. Look at all the elite recruits that have come in. Look at how few NFL draft picks are going out. Do not associate yourself, especially if you got an offer from us at Oklahoma or from us at Alabama or Ohio State. Everyone came and poached everyone out of Texas. And so that's the critical juncture. Who fits that description right now? Look around, because I think I just I named Jeff Collins, but also there are some interesting names really interesting names. When you look coast to coast, some are high profile, some are not, where they're entering that critical juncture. Haven't gotten the results on the field yet, still been able to recruit okay, but now if we fancy ourselves an elite championship contender, something's got to happen. And here's what the something is. Because a lot of teams out there are capable of recruiting three through 10 right now. Is anyone else out there who is not already hanging out in that club? I could take Texas A&M as a perfect example. Is A&M capable of going from recruiting in the, let's say, the average five to six range to recruiting in the one to two range. You'd think that doesn't sound like there's that big a difference. In this day and age, it's a huge difference. That's why when a coach steps to the podium on National Signing Day and says, we signed a really good program, we signed a top 10 program, I don't care. It's great. It looks good on the resume. It sells to the boosters. I don't really care. Unless you fancy yourself a, an eight and a half win program, nine win program. If you fancy yourself a championship caliber team, I don't want you finishing eighth or ninth. There's a ma- there's as big a gap between the first class in America and the ninth class in America as there is between nine and like 50. I mean, that's just the reality right now. Don't quote me on that. Don't pull out the calculator. Okay, that's a guesstimation. But when you see the results on the field, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are a lot of top 10 average finishers that got splattered this last year by Bama and Ohio State. So just keep that in mind. Really good show tonight. I wanted to remind you before we wrap up. Hey, Colin, one of our stars fell. It's at the end of the show, though. Don't take the side shot. So a lot of you have been emailing me about those Zoom consultations. I kind of put in a, a, 
I paused those uh, really because I had gotten inundated with requests for them and we had holiday weekend. And so I paused that. I'm opening those slots back up right now. It is 738 in the PM central time on this Tuesday night. As soon as I get off the show, I'm checking my email inbox. First come, first serve. If you're interested in getting into sports media, you want to start a YouTube channel, you want to start a podcast, you're interested in anything along those lines, and you want some guidance, I've I've had some experience in that field, shall we say. JoshPate706 at gmail.com. You can hit me on Twitter, at LakeKickJosh, if you want to reserve one of those slots. Also, uh, at LakeKickJosh on Instagram. I'm done begging you. It's been a really good show. We'll be right back here same time on Thursday night. So until then, for Director Emeritus Colin, for Jesse and the entire crew in Connecticut, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Have a great rest of your evening and God bless.